Psalm 83 doesn't sound like the happiest psalm in the book, does it? It's a plea for retribution, a call for justice and vengeance and payback, to repay the evil nations for what they have done. A call to wipe them out, to destroy them as they're trying to destroy Israel, to put them to disgrace and shame forever, to let them perish in disgrace. And when we read it, some people find this is sub-Christian. There are some prayer books that won't include this to be read in church. It's so violent, it's so aggressive. There's no sense of mercy or forgiveness. It's such a payback view. They're trying to destroy us, so God, get in first and destroy them. It's so racist and nationalistic. God is on our side. So let's call on him to destroy the enemies of us because God's on our side. But generally, people who think that this, the, the call for justice is somehow sub-Christian haven't been involved in much suffering. For when you are in the middle of the Holocaust, you are well disposed to calling for justice and with good reason. And when your son is murdered by a pedophile, as in the recent case in Queensland, you're certainly going to cry out that that man never be released, but will pay with the rest of his life if you don't actually call out for the death penalty to be reinstituted. It's we who live safe and secure in a stable society who get squeamish about calls for justice, for vengeance, for repayment. But when you suffer severely injustice, then you will see the call for justice of Psalm 83 and other parts of the Bible will be expressing your heart. But we are experiencing the great mercy that's not common to humans in history, but is a wonderful blessing of our particular age and nation that we're in. But it's a blessing that beguiles us into minimising the seriousness of crime and the inability of actually ever recovering certain criminals. So, Psalm 83 is a plea to God. Verse 1, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Or verse 13, O my God, make them like a whirlwind. It's a plea to God and in it we learn much of the psalmist's understanding of God, of the scripture's understanding of God, the creator, the judge of Israel, the judge of the nations, the most high, the almighty God. Much is said about the very person of God in this plea to God. It's also a plea to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, the one and only God ruling over all the nations, but who is especially the God of Israel. His name is there in verse 16 and verse 18, but it's translated with Lord in uppercase on each occasion. But the verses are speaking of the name Yahweh. Indeed, verse 16, that they may know your name, O Lord. Well, it's a pity it's O Lord at that point. I think the Bible translations, we should move, that they might know your name, Yahweh, because then you realise what he's saying. It's not just a title, it's his personal name. Or verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, is the most high over all the earth. The name speaks of his person. 
and of his personal relationship, especially with Israel. But it speaks more of the nature of God, that he is a personal God. And it speaks of him as opposed to other gods. He's not Moloch, he's Yahweh. You may confuse one God with another God, but you would never confuse Yahweh with Moloch. It's good to have the name that is there. Anybody can see I'm a man, but my friends know that I'm Philip. You may confuse me with other men, but if you know me as a person, then I am unique. I am the one and only Philip Jensen. I'm not the one and only man. I don't have that kind of, quite that arrogance to think that I am the man, but I am the Philip Jensen. Well, there are many gods and many lords in this world, but there's only one Yahweh. He is the one true God. But that Yahweh name is so important to distinguish who it is we're speaking of. And so the psalm moves from God in verse 1 through to Yahweh in verse 18 as the appeal becomes more defined and more insistent. It commences with a plea for action. There is a sense of timing in suffering. We wait for release, for a change. We wait for that speck at the end of the tunnel to, to really open up to be the full daylight as we come out of the tunnel into the day again. There's a, a painful sense of when will it be over? When will the doctor arrive? When will the cavalry come? When will the ordeal finish? And if we are asking for God's help, then there is this sense of why doesn't he come and fix it now? Why doesn't he fix it up immediately? It's, it's the union chant that you hear in the demonstrations if you don't share in the demonstrations. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Very rarely will you have people say, when do you want it? Or sometime in the future. I don't care when justice comes. Just, you know, but it's never that. If you want justice, you want it now. So the psalmist starts off verse 1 with this silence. Oh God, don't keep silence. Speak to me, God. Tell me what's happening. Explain to me the situation. Tell them to stop the warfare. Call out it, condemnation. But don't say silence. Speak to us. For there appears to be a stillness about God. He's holding his peace. When we're at warfare, don't hold your peace when we're at warfare. He's not acting when we need him to act. We're being trampled on and he's not acting. He's doing nothing when we want him to do everything. Do you remember Lazarus? You remember he had a sister, Mary, another sister, Martha, and how when Jesus came at the time that Lazarus had died, how Martha challenged Jesus with a voice of accusation. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus had known that Lazarus was sick. The message had got through to him and he knew that Lazarus was sick unto death. He knew it wasn't trivial. But if you read John 11, you'll see that he purposely delayed coming. He purposely chose not to go and prevent his death by healing him. He delayed his departure until Lazarus was dead. And then he came. For Jesus knew of the greater purposes of God than simply Lazarus's healing. 
He knew of the glory and plan of God that would be revealed in resurrection, that would be symbolized in the resurrection of Lazarus, foretelling the resurrection that was coming in him. And so Jesus held back until the right time. So for Martha, the sufferer, it wasn't the right time. The right time's now. That's when the right time is. But in God's timing, the right time may be very different. To the sufferer, to the psalmist, the cry is, oh God, don't keep silence. Don't hold peace. In. Don't be still, oh God. So look at the crime of these people. They're attacking us, but not really us. They're attacking you, O oh God. They're God's enemies. Verse 2, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Now, these people are not simply opposed to Israel. They are at the heart opposed to God. Your enemies, those who hate you. I like the TV show QI, which over summer was on the ABC every night of the week, as far as I could see, because they didn't know what to put on the ABC. If they rang me up, I could tell them quite a few things, but no. I like it because it's funny. I like it because it's quirky. I like it because the panellists are incredibly witty. I like it because it's informative in a kind of extraordinary kind of way. The kinds of things that they tell me are really bizarre but I hate it and don't watch it because firstly it's nearly always vulgar which is so unnecessary as the panelists are so quick-witted and funny they're not the men who need to be vulgar to get you to laugh but yet they are always vulgar but also I hate it even more because they are so much the enemies of God they hate God and take every opportunity to make fun of him and scorn those who believe him and pour derision and contempt on what they call the imaginary friend. It's because they hate God that they always make fun and speak ill of him. Not only of God, but also of God's people, of anyone who believes in him. You see, people who are indifferent to God hardly ever mention him. And if they do, it's sometimes complimentary, sometimes derogatory, but usually polite and tolerant. But the people on QI never miss an opportunity to bag out God and his people. They not only never miss an opportunity, they also go out of their way to create opportunities in order to make fun of God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the hateful filled enemies of God which our ABC gives them prime time every night of the week throughout summer some people call it our ABC I call it theirs it's because of this hatred of God uh, by the way they never make comments about Muhammad and Allah it's always about God and Jesus it would be very interesting to see what would happen if they made comments about Muhammad and Allah and whether the ABC and BBC would be blown up for making the kinds of comments they make about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm glad that we are different to the Muslims in this regard. That we do turn our other cheek is the right and appropriate thing for Christians. 
that they do blow up the station is the right and appropriate action for Muslims because Muslims have a different view of violence than Christians do. But it's interesting, they haven't got the guts to say it about Muhammad as they do about Jesus. It's because of this hatred of God that people attack God's people. So verse 3, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. Israel is not just another nation. Israel was God's chosen people, his treasured possession where his name dwelt. This is so often the strategy of people who hate God. It's to attack God's people try to marginalise them, remove them from their influence in society, make fun of them, silence them from public debate. And when people want to remove us from public schools, when people want us to close down religious schools, when people want us not to be able to use the public media, when people want us not to speak on social issues and whatever we do, not to speak on homosexuality or abortion or any issue like that that could possibly offend anybody, we're not allowed to offend anybody in society but everybody is allowed to offend us. That is the nature of it. That has got to do with the ultimate hatred of God, not us. It's God, the God whom we represent, that they hate. For the psalmist, the aim of the enemies of God is to do away with the people of God. So verse 4, they say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. See, if you do away with the people of God, you do away with God. I mean, do you know the God of the Moabites? Do you know the God of the Ammonites? Do you know the name of the God of the Amalekites? Do you know the name of the God of Tyre? You don't know those gods' names because those people have been done away with. Uh, I can just see some of you at the moment are just thinking up in your trivial pursuit what was the name of the God of Moab. And we do know them because of history, but you'd learn them because of history, not because they're known. You won't meet worshippers of Moloch today, just as well, because Moloch had children sacrificed to him. You wouldn't want to be actually a worshipper. Well, you wouldn't want your father to worship Moloch anyway. You don't meet them. Because the Moabites have been done away with, you don't meet the God of the Moabites, you see. So if we could do away with the God of Israel, then we won't be, the, sorry, with the nation of Israel, then we won't be bothered with the God of Israel anymore either. Their hatred of God is aimed at the people of God to destroy them completely and so remove the name of God from the world. And the psalmist sees the conspiracy of all the enemies of God and of Israel working together to do this. Now, you've always got to be wary of conspiracy theories, haven't you? Uh, I've written, a, I've read a couple, not written, I've read a couple of right-wing books of recent times, and there are conspiracies riddled all through the books. And you know, you you worry about people who always see the red under the bed. The, not everybody is caught up in conspiracies all the time, but just because we're suspicious about conspiracy theories doesn't mean there aren't conspiracies that's not the case is it there are conspiracies there are people who work together there are common causes that people have the psalmist sees a contract a covenant between the conspirators to conspire with one mind against god so in verse five it's against you that is god 
for they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. And who are these conspirators? Well, they're the surrounding nations of Israel. Let's have a quick look at a map here, if we can, on the PowerPoint. Uh, there is the map. And the names that they are listed there for us, Tyre, Philistia, Ammon, Moab, Edom, they're all just immediate neighbours of Israel. And Asher is another name for Assyria, which is the major world power in the 8th century and is some considerable distance away from there, but rules over the whole of these minor states. That, but from the point of view of Israel, I look north, there's Tyre, I look south, there's Edom, I look over to the west, there's Philistia, I look to the east, there's Ammon. No one likes us. They've all gathered around us to get rid of us. There's the conspirators. Some others are not put on the map for you. Uh, because they're nomadic tent dwellers, the Bedouins, the Amalekites, the Ishmaelites, the Hagrites, they're Bedouins, you can't actually map where they are, but they're out there in the desert too, and they don't like us any more than the others. And the overarching of all these is the world power of Assyria, which in the end is going to come down and destroy the ten northern tribes of Israel and nearly destroy the two southern tribes as well. Here are the traditional enemies of God. Some, like Moab and Edom and Ishmaelites, are relatives of the Israelites. They're the descendants of Esau or the descendants of, Isaac, of Lot or the descendants of Ishmael, all of whom were in the family of Abraham, but now many hundreds of years later hate the true descendants of Abraham, namely Israel. But interestingly, we know no time that this psalm could have been written and no time in a sense in which this psalm couldn't have been written. That is, in history we know of no actual conspiracy amongst these particular groups of people when it took place, when they all covenanted together to destroy Israel. He's not giving us a moment in history. He's giving us the settled, continual plotting of the enemies of God to destroy the people of Israel. It was always like this. It's like Psalm 2 where he says the nations are always plotting in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. And so we come to the plea of the psalmist for protection. And more than protection, for retribution. Giving them what they deserve. Giving to them what they planned for us. And in this plea, they depict God and plead to him in several different ways. Firstly, as the God of history, in verses 9 through to 12, with his plea to do to them as you did to the others in history. And then he spells out the other times when God destroyed his enemies. He picks on two, really, the Midianites and their nobles, who are listed up there for you, verse 11, Oreb and Zeb and the princes Zebar and Zalmunna, and the Midianites, uh, sorry, the Canaanites, they were the Midianites, the Canaanites whom Sisera and Jabin represented and were destroyed uh, by Balak in the time of Deborah. Uh, these were great famous victories. The Canaanites were destroyed, if you remember that battle, and their bodies were left to perish out of the battlefield as they fled. They become, as he calls it, dung on the ground. And the Midianites, they envied the pasture land of God in the, uh, and, and in their raiding prevented Israel from using their land properly. 
But under God, they were all defeated. And their proud boast of verse 12, let us take possession for ourselves, the pastures of God, that proud boast came to nothing. So now the psalmist is saying, well, you did that to the enemies back then. Do it now for the enemies that we have today because they believe in the God of history. Secondly, his plea is to the God of creation. In verses 13 through to 15, I read, O my God, make them like whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with their hurricane. The psalmist's confidence in God is not only in the victories of the past in history, but also in his power over creation. The whirling dust and chaff before the wind, the speedy spread of the forest fire that consumes whole mountains, the tempests and the hurricane, all this is at God's disposal to destroy those who would destroy his people. And this power is what he wants to see unleashed in the destruction of the enemies. Thirdly, he appeals to the God of justice in verses 16 to 18. For throughout the psalm, it has been an appeal for justice to give the enemies what their enmity deserves. But now we see the request as that they face their judge and are put to shame and to disgrace for what they have plotted to do. It almost looks as if he's asking for them to be saved. Fill their face with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. But it's not to seek him in order to repent and be forgiven. It's to seek him in order to know their error, see the rightness of their condemnation, knowing at last who they were attacking. See, verse 17, wants them to be put to shame and dismayed forever, perishing in disgrace. There's been a series of letters in the Herald recently of jokes that I don't altogether mind, though I'm uncomfortable with and wouldn't tell myself about which position on the football field the Lord Jesus Christ would play on if he was on the team. And so, you know, a church notice board over in the, in the Northern Peninsula put up a sign saying that Jesus comes to Manly, to which a, a, a man scribbled underneath it, Good, we'll play him at halfback. And it's that kind of humour. A Christian brother wrote the other day in a way that I would not have written either, but I concurred with him in the heart, that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in all his glory and everybody gives account for every idle word they've uttered, your jokes will be seen how puerile they are. And there's a truth in that, isn't there? You make fun of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just remember to whom one day you are going to give account and you will give account for your attitude to him in particular. I wouldn't have written the, the joke letters. I'm not sure I would have written that letter either. But I can understand the humour of the jokes. But I was glad somebody said actually... You joke about Jesus at your own peril. What the psalmist wants them to know is that Yahweh alone is God most high. 
So verse 18, that they may know the name of the one and only, of the God above all gods, the name of the most high over all the earth and over all their nations, including the God over every nation, that they might know that Yahweh, whom you hate, and whose people you seek to destroy, is in fact the most high over all the earth. And so we have in this psalm a plea for retribution. But is it sub-Christian? No, it's only asking for something which is at the heart of God, namely justice. Giving people what they deserve, retribution lies at the heart of justice and justice at the heart of God. And it holds the honour of God's name is of greater importance than the salvation of sinners. Indeed, one of the motivations for saving sinners is to bring honour to the name of God. We are so self-centred, so human-centred, we think that salvation is all for us and only for us when in fact it is for the glory and honour of God that we will be saved. But yes, in some sense it is sub-Christian if you take this psalm as the totality of your Bible. This psalm without the rest of the Bible is sub-Christian because, not because it's wrong, it's not wrong, but because it's not the whole story. It's just one side of the story, one side of the coin. This is the heads. If you want to see the tails, go to another psalm. But if you only have the tails without the head, you won't get it right either. For there are other elements to the character and heart of God than justice. There is grace, there is mercy, there is pardon, there is forgiveness. But yet without justice, without punishment, without retribution... Grace, mercy, pardon, forgiveness become meaningless sentimentality. If everybody is forgiven of everything, then there is no morality and there is no justice and there is no forgiveness either. There's just acceptance. And acceptance and inclusion, two favourite words of our world today, acceptance and inclusion are not justice or mercy. They're quite different things. And it's quite fascinating that while we are to accept and include all kinds of people's immorality, our society will not accept and include a pedophile. I'm glad we don't. I'm not advocating we should. I'm just saying at that point we've got to say, no, we need justice. And we're not even sure we want to give mercy. More importantly, is the Christian assurance that we have that God will be just and merciful and it will all be seen on the last day. So let me conclude by getting you to turn your Bibles up to 2 Thessalonians. It's page 1180, page 1180. And you'll see the themes of Psalm 83 here in the New Testament as well, which can hardly be sub-Christian. Page 1180, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians are suffering the persecution of God's people. But when the day of judgment comes, punishment will be upon the enemies of God. But those who are God's people will share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at that moment. And people will see us and they will marvel, they will be astonished. They will be put to shame and disgrace because the Lord Jesus whom they ridiculed and the Lord Jesus people whom they attacked will actually be seen in the glory of God the Father. For all glory will be to him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that only in the Lord are righteousness and strength to the praise of God the Father. That day will come. So patience, my friends, in your suffering. Endurance. It'll come. And in the meantime, pray that they might come to know the Lord, not just in the justice on the last day, but in the mercy of the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that we may share his glory and bring glory to him so that on that last day when he is revealed, all may see that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray for that as we pray for our brothers and sisters suffering persecution around this world this day that you would keep them firm in their resolve to stand for the Lord. And we pray for them and ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew.